This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Lee Pierce. I am your hostess with the mostest. I use she, they pronouns, uh, and I'm a rhetorician from New York. And I am so excited today to welcome one of my all-time favorite authors, someone that I was reading well before I even knew that I wanted to go to grad school, and that is D.A. Miller, who is here today to discuss the book Hidden Hitchcock, no subtitle, two words, uh, very apropos of the book published by University of Chicago Press. And, um, you know, there's so much to say about D.A. Miller. I'm quite sure that many of our audiences in the language channel will be familiar with his work. The novel and the police, of course, an an iconic uh, required reading for most people in literature and languages. So with that said, I will just turn it over to D.A. to introduce himself and tell us more about the book and anything else that he thinks uh, we ought to know. D.A., are you there? Yes, I, I'm, I'm here. Uh, Wonderful. I don't know what to uh, tell you about myself. I was trained as a, a literary critic, uh, um, but I, what, uh, I, uh, well, how can I put it? Uh, when I was in college, uh, the same building that by day uh, housed the English department, by night uh, was the venue of the College Film Society. And I, I seemed to spend my entire life in that building. Um, uh, by day studying, uh, I guess, the classics of English literature, and by night um, uh, acquiring a film culture. And so um, uh, I had uh, I'd always been interested in Hitchcock since I was, since I was a child. But um, uh, so in a way, I suppose it's not so surprising that I would write about Hitchcock eventually. But, mm. but what was surprising to me, or rather, I mean, that, that I would write Hidden Hitchcock, this particular book, uh, was not what was a bit of an accident uh, uh, or, huh. uh, or the accumulation of a, of a series of accidents. Um, I just kept, in the course of watching and rewatching Hitchcock, I, I kept sort of um, stumbling into these, uh, these weird moments. These weird moments. Uh, these moments seemed at once, uh, they seemed to have two features. They seemed to be intended by Hitchcock, but also be intended not to be seen. And so uh, it was strange. And so I, uh, I don't know, I, uh, uh, enough of these things accumulated and I, I decided to make it uh, somewhat systematic. Uh, um, that's how the, uh, a little bit how the book came to be. Yeah, it, yeah, and the name, of course, Hidden Hitchcock, it's probably more like, 
maybe almost there, barely hidden Hitchcock. Barely hidden Hitchcock might be the right, because that is really the contradiction that drives the book that's um, in these Hitchcock films that you choose. And you and you talk about a, a lot of them, right? Several different ones. But the main ones that are featured in the book are Strangers on a Train, Rope, and The Wrong Man. And yeah, exactly, that there are these like on-purpose accidents, or you have a bunch of different ways to describe them that sort of structure Hitchcock's films and i think um just because i don't want to presume anything of our audience there's a lot of hitchcock criticism and you are intervening in interesting ways in some of that so maybe we could start by actually maybe zooming out a little bit and telling people like what's the if you've never read any hitchcock criticism or you're not really a close uh reader of his films maybe you just kind of know about them from pop culture what's the dominant trajectory of that literature and then where do you see yourself kind of this book being a little bit different um well, let me um, let me start with 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 something that I think most people know, but I'll explain it in case. Sure. Happens. Yeah. Good idea. The, the, Hitch, the, Hitch, the Hitchcock cameo. Hitchcock makes an appearance in every one of his films, um, and the appearance is brief, and it's it's pointless. It's always there, but it's pointless. He doesn't play a character. He has no narrative right. function. He just typically walks on the screen and off. And maybe as a figure of fun, he, he's not particularly attractive, at least in contrast to the movie stars he's, he's sharing the screen sure, with. Sure. Uh, and uh, and he's, he's overweight, and he, he very often makes fun of that uh, himself. Um, anyway, but so for the moment of the cameo when Hitchcock comes on, remember, it has nothing to do with the story, nothing, nothing, nothing. We, we stop. We don't pay attention to the story. We, we look at Hitchcock and we say, there's Hitchcock, there's his appearance. We laugh, we're pleased. We've, it's a game that he's taught us how to play and, and we're happy to play. Now, uh, one might say that that is the, the main moment in, in Hitchcock movies where we are allowed to be distracted from the plot. Mm. So it's like, let's, let's forget suspense, let's forget um, the story, the characters, their uh, troubles. And let's just look at Hitchcock. Okay? Now, that's just one single moment, okay? Everybody, okay? So as soon as he disappears, we, we go back to the story, which grips us. Okay? And so I suppose the, the thesis of, or the, I don't know, the, the wager of, of Hitchcock is that, that there are lots of moments that we don't maybe know about where, we, you know, where uh, we could, if we saw them, uh, be distracted from the story. In other words, that Hitchcock, he gives us one moment where he says, distract yourself and look at me. But what I'm suggesting is he's doing this uh, all the time. And we, don't, we just didn't know it. There's, like, we think that because we see Hitchcock here, that that's the only place he can be. And so mm. one, of the, one of the things I do uh, in Hidden Hitchcock is to show that in, in all three of these movies, there's not just one cameo, the one we recognize, but there are these others that are made to be not recognized, mm. uh, but, but are there, demonstrably there. And so I, I suppose just to, one way to put this again, just to say that um, when you find these multiple cameos, I mean, the convention of the cameos, the Hitchcock appears once and it's obvious, but what I've Tried to suggest that it appears many times and in a secret. And so I suppose that's suggesting something about, you know, 
you think you know me, but you don't, or I'm not where you think, uh, mm. or I'm not just where you think. Yeah, and so that kind of gets us, I think, to, so this word cameo turns into other kinds of words that all point to the same sort of, um, I'm here, and you think you know what you're looking at, but you might actually not be looking at what you thought you were looking at. And it requires uh, sort of someone either incredibly closely following what's happening or someone like you to guide us through. And I always tell people, one of my favorite things about literary and film criticism is I often like the things that are being critiqued more once I've read the critical pieces. So I enjoy Hitchcock more now that I have your eye to watch some of these films with. And I think that's the real benefit of this book is um, that it gives you this whole other way of viewing Hitchcock that like you say, becomes kind of this hidden picture game. And now all of a sudden, all of Hitchcock, every time I watch a film that's not featured in your book, I start to think like, oh, what's here? So it, it's really been awesome. And I think in the time of COVID, especially when we've all been having to keep ourselves entertained, I have had a whole new uh, imaginative uh, world to stay busy with by redoing sort of my tour of Hitchcock, which was not sophisticated to begin with, but doing it through the book. And so in addition to cameos, which is one way that this stuff happens. You have these other terms that you introduce, uh, understyle, these continuity riddles, and they are kind of like, they're not the cameo, but they serve similarly, and there is a image on the screen that isn't what it looks like if you're looking closely, and it's sort of not meant to be seen, but also sometimes the film points it out in ways that make you wonder yes. if it was meant to be noticed. So can you tell us exactly, more about yeah. this concept of, of understyle and continuity riddles, yes. and then maybe your concept yes. of the oh. too close reader, which I find really interesting. Oh. Okay, um, yeah, the, the uh, Hitchcock has a very uh, clear style. It's, it's, it's popular, it's not difficult. Uh, it's very easy to follow mm. a Hitchcock film. Uh, it's all sure. about making it easy to, to follow. Um, so, so, but um, uh, I suppose because of suspense, and that's, that's a kind of key, key mode for Hitchcock, suspense, uh, it's, it's, it's my belief that when, when we're in the state of suspense, you know, when we're, when we're held in suspense, you don't look that well because you're, uh, suspense, you know, makes the image images part of a dynamic. It's like, and now mm -hmm. what? what, what uh, we're waiting for something to happen, and so we're not looking at the images that carefully. And so, suspense is very often a way for Hitchcock to, you know, to, to sneak in, for instance, a cameo. So, but, uh, uh, but, um, uh, sorry, but, um, I want to go back to your question, but I. Uh, uh, I've lost my uh, thread. Yes, yeah, so, well, no, you're so, on the so train the, of thought. So because, the, yeah. the so um, the um, well, let's you know, Hitchcock uh, always thought of as you know someone who doesn't make mistakes. Okay, but of course, of course, he makes mistakes. You have to make mistakes in filmmaking. It's inevitable. Sure. And so, um, uh, so uh, in well, in Rope, for instance. Um, it's, it, the project inevitably involves mistakes, uh, the way it's filmed. If he wanted to film it in a single shot, he couldn't do that, so he, he did it in, in long takes. But there, you know, there still had to be cuts, and he tried to mask the cuts. Okay? But, but they can't really be masked all that well, okay? and so you can see where the cuts are. Okay? Um, and, um, and you can see you can see the errors. You can see, like on, on one side of the cut, for instance, um, 
there's a, a pair of uh, ice cream sundaes on the other side of the cut. You see those, sa those same sundaes, but you realize they're not the same sundaes, okay? They've been mm -hmm, switched mm -hmm. just because, because um, you, could, you, you could keep those, the, the original sundaes in the time it took to set up the second uh, take. So, um, uh, so there are all sorts of errors, okay? all sorts of uh, continuity errors, let's say. However, and this is, this is one way that Hitchcock will treat them, okay? maybe you see this error, maybe you don't, okay? but let's suppose you do, uh, then you might be attentive to the dialogue around the error. And so in, in the dialogue, the mm -hmm. lady is saying to the, to the man holding the dessert, she says, two desserts? And so it's a little funny because um, sure. it, it's as though uh, that, you know, there were some meta cinematic reference to the two sets of desserts that we've, we've just witnessed. And so there's a certain kind of wit, if you like, in Hitchcock. Sometimes it seems uh, clear, other times you can't be sure. You can't be sure, you know, like, um, you know, like, is that dialogue about the continuity error as well as serving as, as ordinary dialogue? Right, yeah. And so um, I, I argue that when enough of these things accumulate, uh, it starts to look like a kind of intention, a kind of uh, witty treatment of error or a witty awareness of error. Mm. Uh, that would be, you know, and, and so the understyle, um, uh, I suppose it is that, that sensible. sometimes in Hitchcock, you don't know whether you're dealing with a mistake or a very uh, conscious um, right. making a mistake for our, you know, for our interest. You know, is it a mistake or a meditation on mistake? And, and so he, um, uh, and, and you, you sometimes can't tell. And I think what I call the understyle is that that sense where so often in Hitchcock, you can't tell whether a mm. continuity error is, um, uh, uh, is being played with, or it's just a, a continuity error. So the, right. the most famous continuity error, I think, in Hitchcock is in North by Northwest, where you see a little boy cover his ears before the gun has gone off. So he, he, he's oh. supposed to, you know, you know, the idea, I suppose, he's supposed to uh, uh, cover his ears after the gun has gone off. But it's a, it's, it's a mistake, okay? Or so it's treated, it's a mistake. And he, he covers his ears, and then the gun goes off, okay? So it's a pretty clear uh, instance of a continuity error. And yet, at the very beginning of the movie, the very beginning of the movie, when you carry Grantis at the Oak Bar, um, he's talking to someone who's hard of hearing. And uh, before Cary Grant uh, has said anything, he makes this gesture. I realize no one can see this gesture, but he cups yeah, his ears. Yeah, the hand, yeah. Mm -hmm. He cups his ears. And so put those two things together, well, you know, you know where he, he's cupping his ears before anything has been said, and then the kid covering his ears before there's a sound to hear. It's hard not to pair them. You know, uh, yeah. uh, and or, or at least to entertain that idea, you can't be sure. Right? I mean, you know, there's, you can't be sure. But I guess there's a lot of that going on in Hitchcock, and I guess what I'm calling the understyle is some way in which he his style assumes responsibility for that in, in some ways. Right? So that yeah. um, um, he's created a kind of world in which it almost doesn't matter whether he meant it or it it just it it. It, it just happened because he's already kind of 
um, uh, he's already offering that as his style. Uh, you know that 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 I don't know what that uh, that error proneness. I guess. Yeah. Well, and this is kind of your intervention in the Hitchcock studies, right? Because other critics, you have this great phrase where you say um, that other Hitchcock critics sort of go looking for these little tiny details that most people would not have seen in order to support larger conclusions about the film that you could have just yeah. guessed, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. right? So it's like, why do all of this careful, close reading to only come up with something that even a lazy reader probably could have guessed about the film? Um, yeah. But your project is different because, and you call it sort of like reading too closely. Yeah. And so could you maybe summarize what, I mean, you've kind of already summarized yeah. it a little bit, but just to bring it home. And then you had a really good example from the introduction from um, the ballot count from murder. Oh, from murder, yeah. As, yeah. as sort of an example of the too close reading. So maybe we could do that before we dive into the chapters. Okay, no. Well, no, the, the too close, uh, too close reading, it, it's, it's a term, I, you know, I, 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 I love it. You know, don't, you know, I, but, you know, it's too, clo too close, like too close for what? Uh, and I suppose what I want to say is, <laughs> yeah. well, too close maybe to be useful, uh, too close to be, to be uh, you know like uh, too close to, to yeah to to have any yeah. use. Okay, so and uh, uh, I didn't start out meaning to do this, but sometimes it just it just happened. But so in sure. in this in 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 this early Hitchcock movie, nineteen thirty, I think, uh, Murder, uh, um, the heroine is. Um, Convicted. Uh, well, she's convicted, but she's also she's accused of murder. She has a jury trial, and in a certain moment, the foreman is counting the ballots, and it, it's it's done in a single shot. Uh, the, the counting is right before our eyes. The camera doesn't move, and it doesn't cut, so we see everything. Um, if there were any sleight of hand, we would see it. Uh, and there's no reason for there to be sleight of hand. The foreman is a dishonest. He's he's just counting. Right, right, ballots. right. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's a little bit of you know, nervousness because he, he sometimes puts the guilty ballot in the non-guilty pile or vice versa. So we're a little nervous. We want him to get it, to get it right. But anyway, so at, at the end, he, he counts the, the ballots and he says, uh, you know, I have 10, 10 ballots, um, whatever, um, eight guilty, two, two uh, not guilty, and uh, two people haven't voted. Okay? So it's, you know, eight plus uh, sorry, it's a ten plus two days, twelve. Okay? It's a, mm -hmm. a classic uh, English jury. Yeah. But uh, and I don't know how I happened to do this, but I was I was a little confused by the the scene, and so I I counted the ballots, and it turns out oh. there aren't ten ballots. There, there aren't ten ballots. There are eleven, and that means with the two who haven't voted, that means thirteen jurors have uh, voted to convict the heroine of murder, but there are 13 jurors. Okay? Right. So it's just, um, it's just something he did, right? Now, mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't think anyone has noticed this uh, before. Okay? Now, having noticed it, um, it's, it's indisputable, okay? There's no, you know, I, I, to sound a little arrogant, uh, I'm right. You can, everybody can reduplicate this experiment and count the, count the belt. Right, right. It's just no, yeah. okay. Uh, but but that but the question is, why does Hitchcock do it? It's it's mm. almost impossible to see, and it sort of, you know, and who would even think to do something like count the ballots? Um, mm -hmm. uh, the um, anyway, 
so I guess it's, it's like, well, what good is this information? Yes, you know now there are not 12 ballots, but, or, you know, what, uh, 13. Why did he do that? Well, I mean, it's not hard to confirm meaning on, on the number 13, okay? It's an unlucky number. The heroine is, is unlucky. Okay, so symbolically, the number 13 is, is meaningful, right? Um, it's just that... Um, it, it's just unclear why Hitchcock would would want to throw it in, right? Just, I mean, it's... Right, because it would require simple. so much energy for the audience to even notice. I don't think, yeah, I, I almost don't think, I don't think it could be noticed if you didn't have, uh, you know, DVD technology. Uh, yeah, you mentioned you know, that because, in the book, that that, yeah. Because, yeah. because I mean, how would you, um, it just seems really odd that any, any, uh, you know, that an audience would start to count the ballots at the very beginning. Uh, it, it seems unlikely because Hitchcock has distracted us with, with a certain suspense because when we see the, the foreman put the guilty uh, ballot in the non-guilty ballot in the guilty pile, we get a little nervous. And so we're, we're more concerned about which pile the ballots are going in. Right, not, right. Not uh, how many ballots. Not the, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so... Uh, yeah. You know, so if I if I if I wave some a sheet of papers at you and I say there are twelve sheets here, I don't know, you might just accept that, right? Sure. Or, yeah. Say, you know, say there's supposed to be twelve, and there are twelve sheets, and so we just accept it. Um, um, mm -hmm. And so it's just one of those things. It's like, um, why would he do it? Uh, it's it's a it's a signature, right? It's a it's a signature. Yeah. But it's a signature that only he can read, or at least I, right. I, I think now more of us can read it. But, but yeah, it's true. You're you're like the the codex to the signature, right? The book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, um, so um, so uh, there are you know a number of, of such things in Hitchcock. Now the thing about the ballad, that's not uh, there's a there, in, uh, there's a range of um, of problems the book uh, considers. Okay, one is like things that are absolutely indisputable, okay? There are 11 ballots. You can count them. It makes no sense, okay? Now, I don't believe this is an accident. I, I, I just don't believe it. I just think it, it was not on purpose, yeah? Um, okay, so it, there are those things that I think are Hitchcock's, if you like, his private, his private jokes, his private games, his, you know, the, the Nabokovian Hitchcock. Then there are things like the two desserts. You can't be sure, like, you know, is he referring to the two sets of desserts in the in the line of dialogue? It says two desserts. Is he is he acknowledging that? You know, um, uh, or isn't he? And then sometimes you think, well, um, uh, maybe he has no. Maybe it's just an error, pure and simple. And so, right. and and I think readers of, of my book, uh, and, and I'm one of them. Sometimes I think, I hope, they will be very convinced and think, oh, you know, Miller's seen something that nobody has seen. <laughs> sometimes they will think, maybe, it could be as he says, or, you know, and then sometimes they'll think, it's complete nonsense, I don't believe a word. And I guess, um, I, I'm not disturbed by that, because I think that it is a kind of a continuum, right, where some seem extremely convincing. Some of my cases, I think, are very convincing. Some are uh, probable, and then some might seem might seem crazy.
Uh, and I guess my point is, why once you start doing the too close, you know, maybe yeah, yeah. close for, for your own good. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, um, so, um, you know, you, you, uh, you, know you, you, you can't tell. Uh, maybe, so I, I hope that goes a little way to answer yeah, it does. And I'm, I'm one place where I think, I know, I know um, we're skipping ahead in the book a little bit because we haven't talked about the book, the books, the different Hitchcock books and Strangers on a Train. But just to kind of, I think one of the places where, which chapter is the chapter on rope, because some of those touches, in fact, there's even a sentence, um, there's a quote from one of the film's characters, Philip, and as they are trying to cover up a murder, they remark to their conspirator, you'll ruin everything with your neat little touches. And with a sentence like that, uh, how on earth could the neat little touches of the film not all be significant, right? But as you point out, some of the neat little touches like the canting candles, like the, the, the ice cream and the parfaits um, are, uh, I think, obvious choices. But then there are these stains on a, on a, on a hat, these chalk marks from where they put equipment. And that's exactly the problem. It's it's likely or probable that maybe these things are in fact actual errors, but because Hitchcock's style is so predicated on these pointless errors, right. it starts to make every single error potentially significant, right. and everything right. you think is true right. an error. Yeah, right. It makes the yeah. well, exactly, and so it's it's just though like um, the the errors look like neat little touches, and, and the mm -hmm. neat little touches look clumsy and. Um, uh, and that's, I suppose, what I, I mean—that that undecidability of error and uh, yes. error and, and, and touch. Um, um, the uh, I mean, one way to put this—I mean, there's, you know, Hitchcock. We could say that Hitchcock is anal. Now, when we say that, you know, it, that means two things. Okay, if we say uh, a child is going through the anal phase, it means he likes to or she likes to play with. Uh, feces. Right? I mean, that's, mm -hmm. So it means like likes likes making messes, likes playing with messes. But when we say it, uh, you know, oh, he's so anal, she's so anal. It, it usually means the opposite. It means uh, someone who mm. does not want to make a mess is is uh, obsessive in tidying up messes, right? And so right. what I'm suggesting about Hitchcock and Rope is that he's anal in both senses. He's making messes, he's mm -hmm. tidying messes, he, he likes making them, he hates making them, he, I mean, he's cleaning, he's, you know, he's tidying up after himself. Um, uh, and, and so, um, uh, I, I mean, that's just a, a way I have of, of kind of capturing the, the kind of ambiguity of, of, of Hitchcock's style in, in, in Rome. Because as the movie goes on, that apartment gets messier and messier. Uh, uh -huh. This, this, you know, um, uh, it gets messier and messier. But you, if you notice between takes, someone has gone around, you know, fixing the pillows and um, straightening the furniture or moving the furniture. Even. Um, right. So. Um, yeah, I'm going to read you a quote, actually, from this chapter, if you don't mind. Uh, so in this chapter, you write, I quote, Rope's understyle is so insistently organized around trouble spots momentarily collapsed polarities of neat and sloppy, graceful and clumsy, clever and ruinous, continuous and fissured, meaningful and futile, that almost any continuity error may appear to be only another beguiling blot in the series. Yes. Yeah. And that's that, so that you can't really, um, uh, 
you know, there, there's, we understand that the, the, the so-called perfect, perfect crime, which isn't perfect, right, uh, is, is being paralleled by Hitchcock's attempt to, you know, what, make a, a, a film that would have no cuts, that would in that sense be uh, whole. Mm -hmm. um, and he can't really do that, so he, but he's trying to. But but if you're if you're trying to get it to pull off a stud like that, I mean, there are two things you must be conflicted. I think. Sure. Is, on the one hand, you want to pull off the stunt, but on the other, if you pull it off too well, nobody will know how nobody knows. Great you are. Right. So yeah. So yep. so in a certain way, you have to kind of show the show the stunt, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And so you're, you're a little bit like the murderers who, who both want to uh, commit the perfect crime, but they want someone to recognize its perfection, which means mm -hmm. detect the crime. And so sure. I think that Hitchcock does that in, in his film. Right? It, there's that way in which he, um, he, he needs to uh, show the effect. Uh, you know, he needs to show the cover-up. Uh, yeah. And, and well, and, and so many things work that way, and, and that's why I think that you know I, I put pressure on the dialogue around the around the cuts. Yeah, uh, you know, because it, it always seems to, or very often seems to be referring to, you know, like another piece of dialogue is after one of these clumsy cuts. Um, uh, there's a blackout, and, and, and the dialogue is, uh, "Has something gone wrong? What do you mean, has something gone wrong?" Well, it's just about one of your partners that something should go wrong. And this, this uh -huh. motif, something, something's going wrong, something's going wrong, something's going wrong, at the moment that something is going wrong, I, it's hard not to uh, see it as, you know, as, as some kind of wit. Right? Sure, kind of wit. sure. Um, well, yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, I found Rope really, all these case studies are really fascinating. And again, I mean, there's a lot of Hitchcock films to choose from. And, and even though you focus on these three, you do grab little snippets of North by Northwest and, and some other films, a little bit of Vertigo. All right. Uh, so, the, um, so Rope is actually the middle chapter. We didn't talk much about sort of the strangers on the train and the books, because this is a place where I really, like, you really had to do a lot of extra detective work right you kind of notice these books and you had to go find the covers and you had to and then you find out they were actually hitchcock books so if you want to talk about that i thought it was kind of a really interesting demonstration of of the the labor that went into uncovering your argument yeah. well it 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 uh yeah it's these are i think my most convincing examples there are yeah. pictures and there's no doubt there is no doubt right. that this is hitchcock's right. signature um now um I recognized the image. Did I realize it was a real book? No, I didn't realize it was a real book, but nowadays you can look these things up, right? Yeah. And then can we, and let's backpedal for a second because I'm not, I, I don't know that people know what Strangers on a Train is, and I don't know yes. that they will know the book we're referring to. So will you contextualize yes. that and then sure. dive into that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Strangers on a Train, uh, as, as the title suggests, not to, to people who meet on a train. <laughs> But it, it begins with um, uh, a, a crosscut uh, between two pairs of shoes. They're going in opposite directions. Uh, you know, we see this pair of shoes moving right, this pair of shoes moving left, and we're expecting them to, to come toe-to-toe. -to -toe. Okay. And uh, they eventually do, but first they walk onto the uh, through the train uh, the gate at the train station. They walk onto the train platform. They walk through the corridor of the train car. Finally, the, the these two 
pairs of shoes, or the owners of these two pairs of shoes, who we don't see, sit down. Okay? And at that point, one of them crosses his leg, and the, the, two, the two feet touch. And at that moment, the camera, which has simply been showing this footwear, it, it jumps up, and all of a sudden, we see the stars of the movie, we see the train uh, compartment, we see people playing solitaire, we see uh, drinks being passed around. All of a sudden, we have a world. We have a world, we have characters, and right away, the story begins. Uh, um, uh, dialogue, introduction of the strangers. So, so you know, we've been waiting for this to happen, and it does happen, and we're you know, we're, we're gratified, we're looking around, taking in a lot of information. But at that moment, at the very moment that we're, we're more, we're more just happy to, to be in a narrative world, you know, with, with, with people and uh, a plot. And so at that moment, um, one of the strangers, Guy, uh, is, is reading a book. He's begun to read a book that he's brought along to read on the train. And you, you see that Hitchcock's picture is on that book. And, uh, and he's reading, in fact, a collection of, of thrillers that Hitchcock edited. Okay. Um, now, you can see this book later on. I mean, you get a couple of glimpses of it. Okay? Um, and so I, um, uh, you can even make out the title a little bit. And so I was able to find a book on that information and, and bought it. And, um, and then I found there's a scene where the other stranger, Bruno, is I don't know, lounging in his, his car after having lunch with Guy. And his, the heel of his shoe is on a, a book that I, I, I just, all I can see is that it says something like suspense. But I, I, I thought, I wonder if it's also a Hitchcock um, uh, anthology. Mm -hmm. And so I went to a bookseller and I showed him the font. And I said, I said, is there any, you know, any Hitchcock book that has this font? And he found it. And, uh, and of course, then I said, and so I, um, you know, uh, I, was, I was pleased. Okay? Um, now, this is one of these things, it's like, so Hitchcock has actually given one of his books to Guy to read and, and another one of his books to read to Bruno, right? So both of the strangers have a Hitchcock book. Now, you can barely, you can barely see these things. I went through a lot of trouble to, to find them. Sure. Um, so what's, what's his point, right? Now, if, if we could see them, let's say that we could see them, it's easy to talk about. It's easy to come up with some interpretation, right? Like, yes, you know, uh, they're both in relation to the Hitchcock thriller. You know, Guy has the book, but he doesn't read it because he, he gets distracted by Bruno. Bruno is supposed to read too much, and we have the implication that he has read the book, right? All right, so we could, we could, we could gas about this a little, right? But the more interesting thing is, like, why, why this is, is hidden in this way? I mean, what, what, what's, uh, there's no doubt about it. You know, there's no doubt. In other words, there's no doubt. I mean, there's no debate possible. Is this a continuity error or not? No, it's not a continuity error. It's put, it's put there on purpose. But, but it's also hidden on purpose. And uh, that's, so it's a little bit like, 
in Hitchcock a certain uh, love of or espousal of secrecy for secrecy's sake. Um, uh, you know, some kind of, I don't know, just some desire to muddy the waters, muddy the waters <laughs> in some way that, yeah, well, that, that, well, the, you know, more BC, you know, or, you know, it's hard. Yeah. Right. But I mean, is this some kind of just drive to futility? I mean, does he just, you know, this very legible style, does he just want to make it at some level completely incoherent and disruptive? Um, or, I mean, you know, is he, is he doing it for himself? You know, is, is it one of these like, I know I'm there, but they don't. Mm -hmm. They think, mm -hmm. you know. Like, um, uh, or, you know, is he, or is it a kind of hopeful gesture? I mean, is it like, Someday, you know, someday they'll, they'll see the, the complexity well, it, of their art. Well, yeah, it, it, there's also the way I thought of it was like, it, it's sort of like, um, so I, I'm a, like, let's say you're a Hitchcock fan and you, and you watch the films here and you watch them again and you watch them again. And for most people, the film just kind of starts to get tedious. And, but what if that's the idea, right? That his films are more like peeling back layers then they are watching the same layer over and over again. It's, it's interesting because maybe it's these hidden pictures and sort of people never quite grasping them that makes Hitchcock one of those directors that has survived forever, right? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, I, no because there's a density to Hitchcock that's hard to describe. Right. I mean, I think yeah. you know, his great critics have uh, tried and succeeded in getting some aspect of, of the density. You know? mm -hmm. uh, but... Um, uh, because there, there's this, when you watch Hitchcock, I see, you know, uh, there's, there's a kind of excess of attention, like, you're kind of glued mm. to the screen, but you're not really sure what you're glued to, right? Like, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like, they're not that hard to look at in the sense that, uh, you know, you, you feel like you can follow the story, the meaning of a shot seems to be clear, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very legible style and so but so it's a little surprising that we should be so uh so engaged and, and Hitchcock critics I'm, I'm one of them but there are lots of others mm -hmm. they're obsessive they tend to be obsessive they pick something up uh in Hitchcock and they and that's why I think that Hitchcock he's really uh, lent himself to a lot of close reading mm. partly but that has something to do with the work I think it has something to do with the kind of attention he he, um, yes. Uh, generates it's an attention that an attention that you don't quite know what to do because it seems sure. in excess of of what you need to follow the story. You know, to, right. to enjoy the story. Well, and that gets us to the final chapter because this one really starts. <laughs> this is really where, like the you know the the mind screw happens. And in this film, um, you're looking at uh, the wrong man. And you actually foreshadow in the introduction of the book that this chapter is going to, in some ways, unravel a few of the logics of seeing that we thought we had kind of mastered in the previous two films, right? So you kind of think you're onto the game in the first two chapters, and then you're like, well, maybe not, because let's look at the wrong man. And you begin this chapter with what you call a, quote, a hidden startup device formed to frustrate optimum viewing to the overzealous viewer whom no amount of true story rhetoric or location shooting can keep from looking more closely than he is asked. So I would love for you to just go nuts because this chapter was awesome. Maybe tell people about the plot and some of these um, 
this again this hidden startup device and then of course you discover like a new cameo that a never before seen hitchcock cameo that in this in this film as well i i, I was i was happy with that too but, um but the wrong man is um it's it's an odd film uh you know for hitchcock because it's based on a true story and so it has a at least on the surface, a kind of documentary, almost neorealist kind of style. He, he filmed on locations um, with, uh, you know, ordinary people acting, maybe even acting themselves, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, um, and so, uh, no, and it's based on a, a, a true life story, right? Of someone who was falsely accused of murder. And, uh, and by pure chance, they, they found the right man and he was uh, exonerated but you know he had gone through had gone through hell before that okay? and uh, his wife uh, went crazy in the course of of, of this misidentification and so that's uh, so um now uh, well so so in general because it's based on a true story, no one would ever think North by Northwest was based on a true story, right? It would, you know, it would just be sure. impossible. Mm -hmm. right, but so, so um, it seems as though there's no, um, uh, what? It might seem like there's, there's no way for the Hitchcock film as we know it to take place. Right, right. So, um, uh, you know, you can't be, you know, you, you can't be witty or ironic at the expense of, you know, the, no, the, this character who still is alive at the time of the film, right? I mean, you, you can't, uh, nor could you mm. imply, in Strangers on a Train, when Bruno and Guy meet, uh, you know, Guy is naive, Bruno is, is not, he's evil. And there's some way in which something happens between them. There's a transference. And so Bruno, kills the woman Guy wants out of the way, and um, Guy feels guilty for Bruno's murder, okay? And so there's a kind of, you know, crisscross, what's called, you know, in the criticism, uh, guilt transfer. And this happens in a lot of Hitchcock movies where, where you know, um, the, the innocent crosses paths or is, is touched by the, the guilty, and they, they, they trade places at the end, uh, consists in kind of re reordering the relationship. Okay? Um, so um, now, Manny, the hero of the wrong man, he was falsely accused. There's no doubt about that. Okay, and he wasn't falsely accused because um, uh, how can I put it? I mean, he was falsely accused. That's all one wants to say there. Okay? Mm -hmm. But what Hitchcock does at the beginning. You know, we see Matty in his, his ordinary life, innocent, naive. Uh, and we see him going to borrow money from an insurance company. And he, he passes through an arcade. And when he gets to that insurance company, he's going to be misidentified as the, a thief who robbed the insurance company. So right. as he goes into the arcade, he's an innocent. When he gets to the insurance company, he's, he's stained with guilt. Right? We just know that. Yeah. And so I mean, that's just the way it's set up. But when he goes through the arcade, someone who is dressed like him and looks like him crosses his path, crosses mm. his path, and gives him a very broad smile. Okay? Now, 
this is the strangest sort of trade moment, right? I mean, it's the, it's the curse cause. It's, it's at the moment, there's a lookalike, you know, a lookalike who crosses paths. He's come from where Maddie is going. Maddie is going to where he can. All right, it's a Hitchcock device, okay? Now, can Hitchcock, of course Hitchcock cannot say, uh, Maddie, <laughs> the insurance company, you know, ran into a double and, and the double passed his, his, his furtherness off on him. All right. He can't say that because it would, I mean, completely violate the, the real life premise of the story, right? Um, right, yeah, yeah. So, but that's what he does anyway, okay? And that's what I'm saying, like, it's the Hitchcock movie, but it has to be in a kind of, if you like, kind of documentary closet, or, you know, in a documentary incognito. But, but, we, but you know, if, if you're used to this, this device, you, you recognize it, yeah, you recognize sure. it. Um, uh, and so, and, and similarly with the cameo, right? If you, um, you, you know, you, you wouldn't be expecting a cameo in the wrong man, right? Will you, and will you set this scene up? Because this is the trial scene of Manny. And you argue yeah. that what's weird about this is that it basically the whole film really only has one dramatic moment, which is, yeah, you know, and it yeah, happens it's, during it's, this, this court scene. Yeah. Yeah. And well, at the beginning of the film, okay, there's a prologue in which uh, you see a figure in silhouette and shadow, and, and the figure says, I, this is Alfred Hitchcock. I am Alfred Hitchcock. I'm going to show you a movie that's unlike you know, other movies I've made. And, uh, and the voice is, is unmistakably Hitchcock. But, um, but the figure is so distorted uh, and in shadow and, so, and silhouette and so forth that you can't really be sure it's Hitchcock at all. You can't really see. Mm. So I, I just want to insist on this, right? We think it's Hitchcock, but we don't really see it, right? Mm, the story mm -hmm. is called The Wrong Man. It's like, that feels significant to me. But anyway, so um, on the other hand, you could say, okay, we've seen Hitchcock. There's no, let's look for Hitchcock in the movie. That game is over. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, right, where we think, we might think it's been over. But I guess I, I wasn't satisfied with this opening appearance because it seemed to me that Hitchcock only appeared to appear, but we didn't really, we couldn't really establish that it was right. because we couldn't yeah. see him, okay? Um, he had the same voice, but we know what movies can do, right? Uh, of course, they could dub it with Hitchcock's voice, but, so you can't even see the lips move. So um, I was, um, okay, so I was, uh, I was unsatisfied, okay, with, with that. And there was also uh, something else I noticed that Hitchcock, um, in the publicity stills for the movie, and in the lobby card, he took a lot of pictures of himself that, you know, where he appears with the characters, um, as though it were a cabinet. Okay? But these don't get into the movie, okay? These, these uh, you know, the, like the lobby, the lobby cards, uh, you know, show Hitchcock standing next to Manny. Okay? It makes no sense. It couldn't be in the movie as we know it. But nonetheless, there was some desire for Hitchcock to make a cameo. Yeah, you feel it. Anyway, so I thought, well, here are these two cameos, one in which, in the, in the actual film, you're told Hitchcock appears, but you don't really, you can't be positive. And then in the lobby card, you see Hitchcock there, you know it's Hitchcock. But that doesn't appear in the film. And so I was, I don't know, I was just 
daydreaming along that. And then one of you know one day when I you know when you, the the line the DA is interviewing one of the witnesses and he says, "Do you see that man in the courtroom? You see this man in the courtroom?" And and you know it's, it's, you're supposed to think it's Manny and you look at Manny of course, but behind Manny you see this figure peeping who is who is Alfred Hitchcock and. And that was amazing because I realized it worked the same way the two desserts worked. Uh, you know, like, do you see this man? And it's like, it's a challenge, right? I mean, okay, yes. Right. I we understand how it works in the, in the court. Like, right? do you see the, the man, you say, Rob, the, you know, insurance company in this courtroom? Yes, and he's right there, and it's, it's Matty Malastero. But, but of course, the, the double the double meaning, once you understand that Hitchcock's cued his camera to this moment, the line, do you see that man, um, is really, uh, it's, it's daring you to, to look. It's daring you to see him. And, uh, and, and so when, when I did, <laughs> it, was, it was a little mind-blowing. Uh, um, um, you know, uh, and it has to be, you know, it, it has to be done very, very carefully because I think an obvious cameo would maybe be maybe border on insulting in a, in a real life story, you know, like. Right, you know, it would, right, right. Mm -hmm. it would, well, it would give the game away that of course Hitchcock is fictionalizing this real, this story, but he's doing it in a, in a very inobtrusive way. Yeah. Um, so, so, so there, but yes. Um, um, uh, I liked I liked finding that cameo, um, uh, and again I'm not sure when I've when I've shown this to people you know before mm -hmm. they came out I would I would lecture on this and sometimes you know people recognize it you know were gaping you know with the same way I gaped when I made this comedy and others were unconvinced you know so I mean, sure sure that makes sense yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I mean, I was compelled the whole way through. Maybe that's just because I came into it a huge fan and willing to believe anything you said. But also, I just, uh, it's too many examples. And again, but even, it, it still, it, it gets to the point of the book, which is even if some of these errors you've identified are maybe, in fact, just errors, the, the, it still doesn't undermine the argument anyway, because some of these errors are quite clearly too useless and on purpose to not, to not mean to draw all error and all purpose kind of into question, right? So the neat separation between things Hitchcock did on purpose and things that are just mistakes of the filming process become, right, like you said, just absolutely yes. undecidable. And that's what that's yes. what the style does to the viewing process, which makes yes. viewing the film so much more compelling. Well, and, and also maybe a little crazy naked. And a little crazy making, yeah, I'm into that kind of thing now. So, but, uh, but yeah, and I like your personal touch because along the way, you're you're doing some of this almost like I don't know, like archival work. So it, it is a it is a piece of film criticism, but it's also um, it's also like a piece of yeah, you had to go find the books and you had to ask a book. So it's almost like your own little detective story of Hitchcock yeah. as you're reading through. I mean, it was it's just a wonderful book. And in terms of wrapping up there. I would like to tell the listeners more about where to get it, especially because the Kindle price on this book is like $10. So anybody can hop over to Amazon. And I mean, $10 is an absolute bargain for this book. So 
certainly I'm excited for lots of people to, to get a chance to read this. Uh, is there anything else you want to say about the book or about maybe new projects you've well, got going on before we wrap up? Well, uh, uh, well a couple of uh, things then. Um, um, uh, while I was working on the book, I was doing uh, film reviews for Film Quarterland. So a lot of the, the mm. thinking I did on the Hitchcock book, I did in relation to other films. Uh, and and that a collection of those those columns is coming out, uh, well, I think next January, called Second. Oh, wonderful. Um, but, um, but what I would say to, I don't know, those listening, that, that I think that I understand, I portray myself as a kind of crazy, uh, crazy professor. <laughs> and that was a little bit part of the, you know, my persona. In the book. But, but, but I guess uh, what I want to say, and I, I think if the book works, I think everybody can do it, right? I mean, yes. everybody can do this. And it's, um, and maybe not everybody wants to, because that way lies madness. You know, like, I, I, I staged it so that the game got harder and more stressful to play you know and and it was kind of one right. thing to kind of find the book you know say oh i found the book you know like i i proved my and another to not be sure whether you know when when the same uh, police van uh, has two different numbers on it at the beginning of the ride and at the end of the ride like whether this is just an error pure and simple, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or whether we're supposed to think the wrong van, rhyming with the wrong man. Wrong man, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I, I, when you get to <laughs> wondering about those things, you, you feel like you may have, uh, you know, got a little, a little mad. But, but that's really the essence of the Hitchcockian experience, isn't it? In the films, that's what happens to, to everybody a little, I think. Mm -hmm. Matt Norman Bates, uh, um, uh, Marion Cray. Uh, um, mm -hmm. uh, so, so anyway, so my sense was that like it, it really what I what I think I've described really is what you actually do when you watch a movie. We have ways mm. of simplifying the process for us. So, like when you see a continuity error, we can say, "Oh, it's a continuity error," and that's a way of saying to ourselves, "Forget about." It. It doesn't, mm -hmm, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. But suppose we don't, because the, at the moment we first see the continuity error, we don't think it's a continuity error. There's just that second where we, we say, but this doesn't make sense, or what mm -hmm. kind of sense does it make? And, sure. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I opened up that avenue, you know, that, that like there's a kind of incontinuity error. There are, um, if you like, available, but maybe not made puns. Yeah, and actually, since you mentioned everyone being able to do it, you your students sort of had a little bit of a hand in this, right? Because obviously, like you're teaching this as you're writing about it. So how how did they um, how did they respond to well, this project? Well, at the moment, I've taught Hitchcock a lot of times, but I but I but I finally committed to this, and so you know I, the course was called in Hitchcock or something like that. And so this is I, at the very beginning. I, I started with strangers. I told them, you know, I told them the project, right, and. It was amazing. They were, uh, I mean, they were, it was a good group, but I, they, were, they were, I thought, the best students I, I'd had um, because, you know, this is a generation that's more visual than, than I ever was, I think. But, and they're just, they're just really good at seeing things, right? And so 
and they were they were just amazing. And, you know, you know, I mean, they came up with more continuity errors than I could. Uh, oh wow! Right? And I could shake a stick at it. I I said this, you know, this. Well, I, I said, if you can teach me something, if you can find something in the wrong man, I haven't seen. You're getting an A for the course, okay? And look, I gave a lot of A's. <laughs> um, um, so I guess, no, but I, it, it made me think I thought the students were good, not to take uh, that away from it. But I also thought that there was something that, like, you know, it's, it's something, the reason it's, it's so, it was so easy for them to do, or so easy, is because in some sense, if you could just get rid of certain inhibitions, and mm. students are probably uh, less inhibited than, than professors, if you get rid of inhibitions, yeah. uh, yeah, you can, you can see so much. Uh, um, yeah, absolutely. This is going to become a new favorite for my visual rhetoric class because I just, again, I mean, I think one of my favorite things about this book is just your, your way of seeing is different than the way I would see by default and be, it's being trained in a new way of paying attention that makes things, yeah, a little crazy, but also far more interesting. <laughs> that's, the, that's the price you pay. Well, again, DA, it's been lovely to have you. I cannot thank you enough for this thank awesome you. book. And I'm looking forward to the collection coming out from Foam Quarterly. That's exciting. So I'll keep an eye out for that. Yeah. And for guests listening at home one more time, uh, we've been interviewing DA Miller today for new books and the book Hidden Hitchcock, which is available for the absolute steal of a price of $11 if you like the ebook. If you're not um, a reader or you feel like your appetite has been uh, satiated with today's conversation, I'd like to recommend that you either head over to your university or public library and request that they pick up a copy of the book so that it's in public circulation or um, funds being what they are for many, many institutions these days. You can also pick up a paperback or hard copy, hard, co hard cover copy that you can donate. And it's just a way uh, to get these books out to people. And part of the mission of New Books Network is to make scholarship and academics publicly accessible. And one of the ways you can do that is by getting these books into circulation. So thank you so much for listening, DA. Is there anything you want to say in terms of closing? Or do you no, want to recommend you. a book thank for us? Much. Are you reading anything uh, good right now or maybe watching any films that you want to leave the audience well, with I, as a... Mm, uh, what am I watching? Um, oh, I wish I, 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 I caught me off guard. Um, Oh, well, I'll give you a I'm second a to think of, about... Uh, yeah. Oh, what, what are you watching? Well, no, I'm watching a lot of uh, uh, Italian uh, film right now. I'm watching a lot of Pasolini. I don't... Uh, I probably yes. don't write something mm -hmm. about Pasolini. But oh, that's exciting. It's almost the, you know, the antithesis of, of Hitchcock, right? I, I, uh, oh. Um, uh, but so that's, that's what I've been doing. And... Um, uh, and I, I just recently wrote something on Death in Venice, which is just came out of yes. the LARB. Oh, yeah, yes. and, uh, and so I, I guess I've returned to Italian filmmakers. I, I, I don't know for what purpose, but I have been watching them. Yeah, I read the Death in Venice piece from the LA Review of Books. It's fabulous. I will put a link to that in the show notes for, um, for listeners to pop over and read it online. Well, thank you again, DA. This has been wonderful. Thank you, thank you everyone, for listening. Everyone stay safe thank and enjoy you. what's left of the summer.